listeners, thank you so much for joining Dave and I for the 12th episode of Pixels and Ink. We're really excited to have you, so thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in. I promise you today it's worth your time. We have an awesome guest. His name is Ted Raymond. He is the CEO and founder of Allegra, Arizona, and he came from working for other corporations until one point he woke up and realized, you know what, I'm ready to start my own thing. So today he gets into how he turned this company into a nonprofit-specific organization. And the reason why? Because every single day, him and his team get to wake up and know that they are problem solvers for work that matters. How awesome is that? So he shares his entire sales cycle. He shares how he got into this nonprofit sector. He also talks about how he engages customers adding one channel at a time and how continuous education is his number one priority. So tune in, listen to his episode, and then, of course, feel free to comment on our blog or let us know how you're liking things with reviews. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Ted, welcome to Pixels and Ink. We're so excited to have you. Uh, something that we like to start out with is tell us a little bit about yourself when you're not working. So family, hobbies, things you like to do in your spare time. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. And uh, for me, things outside of uh, the office really come down to, to two things. It's food and family. And uh, those two things uh, kind of drive everything that we do. So be it uh, traveling, uh, we find great restaurants or um, fishing trips to fly-in camps in, in the middle of nowhere in northern Canada. Uh, it really comes down to hanging out with my wife and son and uh, having some great cuisine along the way. Awesome. So do you like to also cook or you just like to enjoy good food or both? I am a, I am a huge cook. I love, uh, I love all foods, but uh, kind of our claim to fame is uh, several years ago we got a wild hare to build a brick pizza oven in our backyard and it's become the, the hub of all of our friends where uh, we get together and fire up the pizza oven and, and have really fun pizza parties. Awesome. I did see on your website there was an interview that was done with you, kind of a get-to-know Ted um, on your website, and I saw that you don't go a few days without pizza, so maybe that's where it comes from. Maybe you, you have that nice uh, gathering that is also associated with the enjoyment of pizza, which is cool. Yeah, I would say that it's become a bit of an addictive habit for me. I uh, am, am absolutely all about pizza. So, Ted, we want to dig into your transformation from or your transition from Office Max back in the day to entrepreneurship. What brought you to where you are now in terms of, of running your own company? Can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, so my career started like many other careers as a salesperson and then a major account manager and then a sales manager. And ultimately, I was a, a director with OfficeMax when they were acquired by Boise Cascade. Uh, and with the changing of the guard, ultimately what happened was uh, there, there was too many people and not enough positions. Uh, the position that I was offered uh, to run the national account team just didn't intrigue me, and uh, I knew that it was time for me to move on. I'd been in one too many quarterly reviews at the home office, uh, dealing with folks that just didn't get what it was like to be in the field and decided to use that as an opportunity for a transition. Um, when I left uh, OfficeMax, I, I took what had planned to be a month off before I even started to figure out what I wanted to do. And the reality is, is I lasted about four days and realized it was time to go do something different and to do something that really was fun and no longer just the job. I guess from my perspective, I had always grown up around entrepreneurism. My dad was a serial entrepreneur with multiple companies, uh, but never really felt like it was the right time until uh, my wife said, well, you've always wanted to do something on your own. Why not now? And as soon as I had that permission to uh, kind of risk everything, if you will, uh, it was time to, to go out and figure it out. And uh, over the next 
oh, I guess it was probably 45 days, got the business plan together, uh, went to the bank, got some money, threw in a bunch of my own money. And, and I distinctly remember the day that uh, everything was funded. I went out and over the course of about four hours, I spent a quarter of a million dollars on a Friday afternoon. And that Friday night, I came home and was sitting at the kitchen table and realized how much money I had spent in a half a day and uh, freaked out a little bit. I spent uh, all night that Friday night making a list of prospects I could call. The following week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I made 100 calls each day and didn't talk to a single person. And uh, Wednesday night, I remember thinking, gosh, what have I done? I've risked everything my family has. And uh, where is this going? And uh, Thursday, I got a call back. And, and that was my first client who, to this day, is still a client of ours 10 years later. Wow. Out of curiosity, how long had you been married at that point? Gosh, I guess it had been about, well, it was 10 years, I guess, because I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary. She yeah. trusted you. Take yeah, you know, it's. It, I was just thinking about, you know, it's. it's got to be a lot harder to start a company when you're married. And I don't know if you, you must have had your, your son at that point as well, right? I did. You know, looking back on it, I asked myself what I was so afraid of. But, uh, huh. you know, it was at the time it felt like a huge risk. So, so in line with that, and and kind of the things that you learned over, let's say, the first um, you know couple of years that you that you were doing that, what was the best piece of business advice that you you got along the way? Is there something that stands out to you that has really sh shaped your thinking as an entrepreneur? Absolutely, not just as an entrepreneur, but just uh, in businesses in general. Uh, many years ago, when I first started with uh, with Office Max, we had a national sales conference, and the keynote speaker was a gentleman by the name of Bill Golder who at the time I think was uh, a senior VP for Corporate Express. And uh, he, he did a keynote speech that I remember we were at Hotel Del Coronado and I was taking notes feverishly on one of those silly little hotel notepads. And uh, he said, when things go bad, go see customers. And to this day, I still have that note sitting in my bedside table. And I credit my ability to get through 2009 to Bill Golder and and really taking that to heart when things are tough go see customers and uh, you know really what I found is that customers are experiencing a lot of the same things I am as a business owner and at the end of the day we could help them and in turn help ourselves and and uh, that's really been a principle that you know it's not like it was you know, some mentor in a coffee shop giving me some piece of sage advice it literally was in a room with 300 other people but has largely shaped uh, a big part of what kept us going through the tough times. That's amazing. Now, just going back to your entrepreneurship and transition, why Allegra? Why print? Was there, you know, do you feel like the Office Max experience fueled that because you had been around that sort of environment? You know, what was it that that drew you to the print industry? Yeah, so I started my career really early in graphic design, and from there. Uh, really naturally graphic design led to print. Um, when I left Office Max, I had had many years of experience with variable data at that point. And I realized there really wasn't a lot of people that were doing it well, and I felt like I could do it better. I started a company called Print Management Group, and really we focused on uh, web-to-print and higher-end one-to-one marketing pieces. Uh, that led me to meet my business partner today, Eileen, and we merged our companies back in 2007, uh, really with the understanding that she at the time was a 20-plus-year-old company with a great customer base. I was a much younger company that had uh, really 
innovative. In fact, Mindfire was uh, one of the solutions that we had in place that everybody was kind of looking at, and together uh, we we really could be a bit of a powerhouse. And and that's kind of where the story started. Ten, you know, some ten years later, we're still going strong and continue to look at marketing automation as a key service offering for us. Yeah, that's awesome. So 2007, you were really ahead of the curve in terms of personalization. I mean, you're saying you're working in your experience in variable data, and I think that just thinking about you making that transition and knowing that you could do it better, you caught it at a good time because you got caught it before everyone started, you know, understanding. I mean, even there's obviously print companies now that are just wanting to start to make that transition. And so by you having that variable data experience and graphic design background, you were able to um, leverage that and, and, and start to um, bring that to your customers. Absolutely. So tell us about your company and your customers. Who do you serve? Any specific verticals? Yeah, so, you know, again, our, our pedigree is in quick print, and that really evolved into variable data print and direct mail. Um, and, you know, today, really, we position ourselves with three key buckets, if you will. Um, the first one being strategy and design, the second one being direct marketing, and the third one, print and mail. Uh, and really, the, the direct marketing is a blend of the strategy and design and the print and mail is really where it all comes together in that direct marketing. We serve a pretty broad range of industries, but we feel like really what we do best is in the nonprofit sector. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to educate ourselves on what impacts uh, that, that industry, that vertical and uh, have carved out a bit of a niche for us here in the Arizona market as, as being uh, pretty sophisticated in terms of uh, donor acquisition and donor nurturing. So Ted, give us some insight in the nonprofit space that you think you know maybe most people are not aware of but that you've come to understand as something that's true about donor retention or donor engagement. Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, so one of the statistics that we learned early on from the Association of Fundraising Professionals that really shaped a lot of our thinking and positioning um, was really around donor retention. And uh, in terms of, of donors in general, uh, study after study concludes that seven out of ten new donors won't give a second gift. So uh, organizations were spending all of this money trying to go out and acquire new donors, and 70% of them they'd never see again. And, and we recognized that as an opportunity to move the needle, and frankly, one that played really well with uh, what was then cross-media marketing and what is today marketing automation. Uh, and just by focusing on that one business issue, uh, we've been able to drive some really great conversations and have some success in, in helping organizations grow. What uh, is there a program or a campaign that comes to mind that you've done some you know type of work in that area that you're particularly proud of or that had spectacular results maybe for the customer um, you know as you've engaged in doing that? Yeah, I mean there's been a number of campaigns over the years. Some as simple as just an annual giving campaign that we added additional channels of communication. Uh, okay. But probably the work that I'm most proud of today is is the work my teams put together for Valley of the Sun United Way, and, and it really is a full-blown donor automation program where we took uh, really what were best practices in the B2C world uh, around uh, nurturing and applied some of those principles to the nonprofit sector uh, and really looked at how we could move the needle in, in terms of that, that donor retention piece. Uh, you know, for us, we went at it and said, hey, we think we can move it from uh, you know, a 30% retention rate to a 40% retention rate and ran the numbers and saw how powerful that would be and, and what that could mean to 
any organization. Um, and in, in the case of United Way, we're able to move that to a 50% retention rate that translated into millions of dollars in lifetime value. Um, that, that campaign is by far the most sophisticated we've ever done. It involves uh, data modeling. It involves multiple channels of communication with segmentation and multiple personas. Uh, it includes variable data, variable emails, personalized URLs, telephony, SMS text, uh, all wrapped up into a single campaign that really looks at, at donor behaviors and communicates with folks the way we know they want to be communicated with and talks to them about things that are of interest to them. And it's all built dynamically. So a huge amount of effort on the front end. But once the system's been up and running, uh, it really at that point becomes uh, more of a, from an account management standpoint, more about reporting and looking at the information we've gathered to figure out how to make it even better and how to refine it as we go along. So Ted, one of the things that our, our listeners are always asking, and there's two questions that usually come up, is one, how do folks find new customers? You know, How do you go out and market yourself to find companies like the United Way, organizations like the United Way? And... You know, then once you've identified them and start to engage them, um, what is the sales process? What does the sales process look like? And how do you how do you devise a solution that does everything you just described? How do you come up with this multi-channel? I think I counted five channels. You mentioned telephony, email, print, SMS, microsites. I'm probably missing something, but you know that's a lot. How do you figure out how to put that all together? So I, I know there's a couple of pieces to that question there, but I would just love to get your insight in that in that area because folks are always asking that question. Yeah, so the first part of the question is how do you find them? And, and we made a decision many years ago that um, the verticals that we were going to go after, that we needed to be where those people would be. Uh, so we uh, started reading blogs. We started looking at what organizations, fundraisers were involved in. That's what led us to the organization I spoke about earlier, the uh, Association of Fundraising Professionals. We started to just hang out at their monthly meetings. We started to go to their annual conferences, uh, listen to what uh, people were talking about, the thought leaders in that space were talking about, and then uh, recognized that we had some solutions that could address the issues that were keeping people awake at night in that space. In terms of the solutions and really where we started to go, it started pretty simply. It was, you know, hey, let's take an annual campaign that you're doing direct mail, and now let's add another channel. Let's add email. And that hmm. went to, well, let's add email and let's add a response channel of a personalized giving site, which, you know, for all the listeners is a pearl. From there, it just kind of grew. And, and we got to the point where as we started to uh, just show up and interact and network with these folks, we recognized that, that we had information that had high value. And some of that information was pretty basic to start. It was, you know, really around variable data prints and it was around uh, very simple data hygiene, like postal cleansing and those kind of things. And we recognized there was an opportunity to approach it purely from an educational perspective. We started hosting lunch and learns and inviting local nonprofits. You know, sometimes that turned into business quickly and sometimes it didn't. Uh, in fact, we're engaged with a client right now that, uh, or I should say a prospect, that we've just given a proposal to that came into one of our lunch and learns four years ago. And we positioned ourselves as subject matter experts at the time. And as they got a grant some four years later, they recognized that it was an opportunity to take it to the next level and have engaged us to really talk to them about 
where do they go from here? And and really in that strategy side, uh, to start to look at those key business issues of, of donor retention and donor acquisition. Uh, but it started four years ago when we went to market purely as an educational piece, let's give back to the nonprofit community and believing that that would eventually service us as well. Awesome. So I have a question. When you started to go to these conferences in these areas where you're in the trenches with the with the nonprofits themselves, were you noticing that this idea of variable data and personalization was this something new to them? Was it a completely foreign, you know, idea to them that the the use of multi channels or where was the nonprofit sector in terms of their own marketing and communications at that point? And then how did they receive you coming in and saying, Hey, you know, I see what you're doing, we see what you're doing, and there's this whole other way. Were they receptive to it or yeah, so back then and even today, there's a very broad range of sophistication. There's people that are uh, doing the same old thing that they've been doing for the last 30 years, and then there's people that are more open and cutting edge. What has helped us is we were ahead of the trends of understanding that donor attrition was a real business issue that nonprofits faced, and we really approached it from not about print or email or microsites, we approached it from how do we solve this problem of donor attrition and everybody faced that and if we frame the conversation in, hey, let's look at ways to improve that attrition that we could generate conversations pretty easily and start to engage folks just around their key business issue and then plug our solution in on the back end of that. So I got a bunch of questions from that. I'm just furiously writing down as, as you're talking here. So a couple things. So Ted, why fundraising initially when you were looking at the markets to go after? Why did you pick fundraising? You know, it really came down from a corporate strategy perspective. We really looked at our why as an organization. What, what was it that made us get up every day and what could we rally the team behind? And oftentimes in the print industry, you get up and it's, you're producing a photo book or you're producing a direct mail piece and that why isn't immediately obvious. Uh -huh. It's a lot different when you get up and you say, hey, we're doing a campaign and we're going to help feed uh, hungry people or we're going to help house homeless people or we're going to go out and we're going to help teens that are contemplating suicide and we're going to save lives. And being able to tie our teams to something much bigger than the print project was a great way to just rally the troops and to create some excitement and, and really build a culture within our organization around work that really matters. And wow. to this day, we really, we've really built it around uh, two things, that we do work that matters and we figure things out. We're problem solvers for work that matters. And, and it's really exciting when uh, you know, my team members come to me and say, this is something that is really important and I recognize that what I've done to you know, develop this code or design this piece or to print this piece and get it out on time is going to impact someone's life. And it's, uh, it's been a hell of a lot of fun that it's not just another HR manual, that it's something that really matters. Right, right. And, and that, that process of engaging a customer and then adding one channel, I think you mentioned starting with email initially. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was email, I think, of the example that you gave. And then adding another channel and going from there. Do you find that that is a typical process for you? In other words, some folks look at this as, you know, Ted's working all five channels together to generate these results. But in fact, if you look at what you've done, you've started with one channel and you, then you've added additional channels as you've gone along with that customer. So is that typical for you that you add one at a time? 
Yeah, I think probably the most common model that we go after is to start with that conversation around just the business issue and then having a discussion around segmentation and okay. what are the different personas that you need to be talking to. And then from there, once we've identified, look, there's two or three key personas that you should be talking to, it then comes to adding one channel or two channels. Um, you know, today there's almost all campaigns that we're involved in. We will have a direct mail channel, we'll have a digital channel like email, and we'll have some social channel where we're kind of flying air cover um, through Facebook or through some other social media that uh, they, the nonprofit may already have a community. But sure. it typically does scale from there. It's it's pretty rare where we'll find a client that right out of the gate is willing to give us six figures to launch a whole uh, integrated campaign across multiple channels. We tend to close first for let's do some data analysis. And then once we have the data that tells us the story, to go back and say, okay, let's look at segmentation and let's just enhance what you're doing today. That builds credibility for us. And once we've got the credibility and it proved that we can move the needle, um, that that affords us the opportunity to go and, and ask for a, a broader campaign. So when you were first starting out, Ted, you mentioned that you invested in education. Just curious, how mm -hmm. long did you invest in educating the market and doing things like these lunch and learns and such? It's not ended. I mean, we, in fact, I just had a, a call this morning with a client that is actually a, a nonprofit consultant who has um, six different clients of, of theirs that they need help with this stuff and we're going to do a lunch and learn for the consultant. So it's, it's an ongoing part of our marketing strategy. Well, stepping back to when you first started that strategy, how long do you think it was before you started seeing results from it? Because I know a lot of people give up right after mm -hmm. the first lunch and learn or they do one self-promotional campaign. They say, you know what, I didn't get much out of it. Uh, how long did you have to do that and, and you know, over what period of time did it take before you actually started to see meaningful results from that? You know, I think it was probably it was probably six months before we started to feel like we could really feel like it was working. Um, okay. And then it was just the flywheel effect that the longer we've done it, the more effective it seems to be. And and frankly, we've learned more along the way and have become more entrenched in the industry and continue to be able to have deeper conversations and draw on what we've seen from other campaigns. Uh, but it certainly wasn't instant. We we really approached it from this is the right thing to do for the marketplace and we just believed that it would it would work so um, you know i can't i can't remember a specific watershed moment where it all worked it's just okay. the longer we did it the better we got and and the more results we saw from it and how do you find these customers like the ones like united way and others that i know that you've been working with i saw cox on your mm -hmm. website and other um, you know big brands how are you finding these customers you know again most of it comes down to being where they are it's it's about going to events a large portion of our customers early on came from just pure networking and okay. as we got some wins under our belt we made sure that we documented those in white papers and case studies and the word just kind of spread and now it's to the point where you know again the consultant that I talked talked about earlier they called us we didn't we weren't marketing to them it was uh, another consultant referred us and and our credibility was built so the hard work we did seven, eight years ago is still paying dividends today because those folks that we kind of brought into the fold and educated back then are now talking about us being subject matter experts. 
That's lovely. Yeah, it seems like we 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 call that here the baking effect. You know, over time, as you start to engage people or people become leads, if you're offering them something of value where they can actually take the content or the information that you're giving them and use it to apply to their business over time, like you said, what was it you said that one company that just recently got a grant was it four years ago that you met them on Lunch and Learn? Yeah, yeah, they came to one of our Lunch and Learns. Well, they came to we we've done two big conferences where we'll have. Uh, over 100 people come in and do kind of a full day event. They had come into one of those, and then they had come into one of our lunch and learns that we hosted in our conference room, and I think we had eight people come in. So, but yeah, that was many years ago. And just, I'm interested in talking about the print component of these campaigns. So it seems, like, well, first of all, what percent of your revenue com revenue comes from marketing services, and then where does the print come in? Are are you is that kind of just kind of bundled into the marketing mix as one of the channels that you do in these campaigns, or you know is there any campaign you know is there any separation between that print and, and the marketing or? Yeah, so our, our non-print or marketing revenue will vary anywhere between twenty and thirty percent of our revenue in a given month. And from there, that turns the cylinders. So oftentimes that strategy and design is driving towards print revenue. When we look at print revenue, we look at it as print revenue overall. So I don't I can't look at what drives the other. But I believe that um, about 40% of our print revenue is probably driven from strategy and design. So upwards 60-70% of my total revenue has started from strategy and design and and move from there. And what would you say you're selling, Ted? You know, because you have print, you offer direct mail, you offer marketing services. Um, but what do you view yourself as actually providing your customer? First and foremost, we're problem solvers. We really okay. we talk about the ceiling fan. And internally, when we're talking to the team, we want to know what our prospect is laying awake at night watching their ceiling fan go around. What is keeping them awake at night? And if we can solve that problem, we know that from there, it doesn't matter whether it's print or strategy or design, that if we can understand that, that key business issue, that our services will fit in there one way or another. Got it. So you talked about how you use these multiple channels, email, print, SMS, microsite, telephony, I think you call it. That's the, for people that don't, maybe don't know, that's the use of a telephone and text um, in your campaigns. Tell us how you tie them all together. And then I'm really interested to talk about, you said air cover. So that's, that's a term that we use around here a lot. You know, of course, that's social media that, that supports uh, the campaigns that you're doing. Have, when did you start using social media? And have you found that that's been able to close the loop in some of the, you know, the attrition in hand, you know, getting people to actually come back as customers again. Yeah, well, as you well know, that attribution is kind of the holy grail of understanding what is working and what isn't. Mm -hmm. What we tend to do is with a lot of social media, we're not actually pushing out the content, but we're designing the strategy around campaigns so that our clients are pushing out social media content that supports whatever the campaign happens to be. So if we're talking about hunger and homelessness, let's push out uh, success stories that that community can look at and say, hey, we're helping this individual in Phoenix or in Gilbert and tell the stories of what donors are doing to help that individual and really trying to tie together that, hey, you're not donating to this organization, you're donating to the Ramirez family that's eating this weekend because of you. Um, so all of those things kind of blend together and to say, one matters more than the other would be difficult for us. We're really of the belief that it's all the channels working in concert 
that's driving the right. result. So Ted, when you're talking about Facebook or using social media, I know you said the example of the Ramirez family tying it to, you know, a family rather than, oh, you're donating to our organization. Are you guys or are your customers using advertising? So Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads, or are they just posting content and blogs and, and, and content out to their customer base or prospective customer base? Some of both. Um, more often than not, it's publishing content to their Facebook audience, for example. Um, we have done some advertising, uh, you know, for people that don't know, Google offers $10,000 a month in free Google AdWords uh, through a Google Grants program, and we manage some campaigns for nonprofits around just advertising. Uh, and then, you know, thanks to some of the education we got from MindFire, we're just starting to dabble in some of the Facebook custom audiences as well. Very cool. So, Ted, one of the questions that people ask us often um, as they're trying to figure out how others are selling successfully to organizations is the, the steps in the sales process. And you've kind of laid it out for us at a high level. But I'm wondering if you can just kind of peel the layers back a little bit and tell us, you know, what does it look like in your role when you're engaging a customer? What are the steps that you go through? In order to get them to that first um, sale with you, whether it be, I think you said, you know, analyzing the data and coming back to them with some insights, what does that process break down into for you and how long does that usually take? And who within the organization are you talking to? Yeah, that's another good one. Yeah, so really it starts with our step in the sales process is identification. So just let's identify a prospect and right behind that is qualification. So we know if someone has $5,000 annual budget, we probably can't offer our services within that budget. So um, the real easy way to do that is every nonprofit in the world has, has to publish something called the 990. It's a federal document that shows uh, their income and also goes back and, and has a line in there on what they spend on fundraising. So it's pretty easy to qualify them. From there, it's, it's really around having an initial appointment. And that appointment is really high-level fact-finding where we try and confirm what we think we already know about those key business issues. You know, we're fortunate that most nonprofits do uh, have that issue of, of donor retention. So that first initial meeting is really around that piece. And what we really close for is data analysis. Let's look in at the, the database and do a data project to confirm what that actually is. Uh, from there, we'll go back, we'll do a presentation around here's what the data, here's the story the data is telling us, and here's some things you might consider that can move the needle on, on the following metrics. Um, and from there, it really uh, takes on a life of its own. That could be another more in-depth study. It could be launching some campaigns. It could, you know, just helping them with an annual giving campaign, or it could be much more involved. You know, again, more often than not, they'll give us an opportunity with an annual giving campaign and uh, often challenge us. You know, we'll, we're fairly confident that we can move the needle on a lot of these, and we'll say, look, this is what we'll do. We'll scope it out from a standpoint of adding an additional channel or two and tell them what we expect their results to be. And then from there, um, go back and report on it. You know, let's talk about what the results were. What did you guys see in terms of campaign, the campaign? And really be a partner in terms of understanding what worked and didn't work. We're also not afraid to um, position it as let's do some A-B testing. Why don't you do what you've always done with half your database? and give us the other half of data, the database and let's look at what we can do and compare the results. And, you know, fortunately, marketing is one of those things that oftentimes the, the more channels you throw at it, the more likely it is that you're going to move the needle. So 
frequently we end up in a really good place. Ted, do you have an organization that is just too small for you to work with or, or put a, another way, is there an annual budget for these nonprofits that you know, is kind of the, the entry level for you that if they're not of that size or of that operating budget, you just don't, uh, you're, you're not a good fit for them. Yeah, I mean, typically we work um, with, from an industry perspective, what would be considered small to mid-sized nonprofits. Now, there okay. are thousands of nonprofits that fall below what we can really help with. Typically, if an organization has a thousand donors or more, we can help them okay. in some way as it relates to marketing automation programs. Really, we look at 10,000 individual donors as our entry point uh, and above. So that must be a, a nonprofit with a budget of maybe, what, four or five million a year, somewhere in that range? Yeah, it, it really depends. It really depends. You know, if, if you were talking about 10,000 donors in a hospital foundation, that could be okay. hundreds of millions. If it's a social nonprofit, it could be, yeah, probably a little bit above that, five to eight million. Uh, okay. And then up from there, our sweet spot in terms of revenue seems to be somewhere around that eight or ten million is when it really starts to get interesting to us. And uh, okay. you know, we work. Our largest nonprofit is probably around seventy, seventy-five million in annual revenue. That makes sense. So, Ted, one question we like to ask, and really, McKinsey, we haven't gotten any odd answers. We you know, we're, yeah, we're we're kind of digging for something that's really kind of off the wall here, but we haven't really gotten anything yet. So maybe Ted will be our first. But what's something that you believe is true, Ted, that most people don't? You know, we preach all the time that failure is good. Um, we try and push the envelope and test things that we don't know if they're going to work. And we approach it from a standpoint of if it works, great. We're out ahead of the market and we've learned something new. And if it fails miserably, we look at that as a data point. And we've developed a process internally where we try and sit down and have postmortems to understand what didn't work, what we could have done differently. Uh, and that's been a really difficult concept, particularly for the younger staff we have, to recognize that it's okay to do something wrong as long as we learn from it and it now becomes a data point for us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you, and we hope you have a great day. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. Well, that was so much fun. Thank you listeners for tuning in and for staying for the entirety of the interview. We hope that you really were able to learn something from Ted and take it to start to apply it to your business immediately. So feel free to interact with us as well as Ted. We'd all love to hear from you. A few ways you can do that. Number one, head over to our blog. You'll see Ted's contact information as well as Dave and I's. Most importantly, we need some help from you. We really want to make it on the new and noteworthy section in iTunes. So feel free to subscribe to our blog directly, leave reviews, and then share it with your friends. Anyone who you think that would benefit. Um, the more the merrier, the more listeners, the more feedback, the better content we can bring to you. So with that, we'll leave you. I hope you have an awesome day and tune in next week. Bye.